Well, praise the Lord. It's good to see a good group after that big meal. Um, so easy to go home and have a little nap, uh, but thankful again that we get to uh, worship together. And I'm really um, excited about this portion of Scripture because I think, again, it's amazing what it shows us about the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll realize in chapter number 12 that there were certain Greeks that came to the Lord Jesus and wanted an audience with them. And that uh, caused Jesus to reflect that the hour had finally come. This hour that we've heard about all the way through this gospel had finally arrived. And we realize well, what he's talking about because he goes on and explains it, that he's talking about, again, his death, his impending death, and the great fruitfulness that would come through his death. But he also talks about the crop or that uh, plant that will come up, you know, and how, how it will endure, how it will go through. And we realize following the Lord Jesus Christ's gospel, you know, and one of the things I love about Scripture is there's so much mystery that happens to be again in it. You know, so much mystery when, when it te- teaches us about God. We realize that God, again, is incomprehensible. He's big. You know, our minds truly cannot contain it. So many of the truths that we find out about God, that we find out about the Lord Jesus Christ, are incomprehensible. We can describe them very accurately, but as far as fathoming them or understanding them, we just can't do it. You know, example, that's the Trinity. You know, I don't think there's anyone that ever studies the Trinity that after they study the Trinity say this, oh, I get it now. You know, I understand it now. We realize that this is one of these incomprehensible doctrines that show us the bigness of God. God is three distinct persons, right? He's not three manifestations of one person. He is three distinct persons in one being of God. We realize there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We realize the distinction in these people at the baptism of Christ. We realize Jesus goes down in, in the water. We hear the voice in heaven, being in heaven. This is my beloved Son. And then we have the Spirit lighting upon him. Those are three distinct persons. Without the distinction that happens to be in the personhood, when Jesus dies on the cross, who is he to present this offering, this sacrifice to? You know, if there's not a distinction between him and God the Father, if there's not a distinction in the, in the Godhead, then who does the Lord Jesus, when he ascends into heaven, sends, uh, send uh, back to be another comforter? And that happens to be the Spirit of God. But at the same time, we realize that there's one being of God. And that's absolutely essential because as we come, if if there's three gods, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, how do we worship God? You know, how do we divide up this worship before God? Is one Sunday we're going to worship God the Father, the next Sunday God the Son, and the next Sunday after that God, God, God the Spirit? I mean, how would we worship? But when we come together to worship, we worship the one triune God. Now, saying all of that, We can't comprehend that. We cannot comprehend three distinct persons in one being that happens to be again of God. It's the same as the virgin birth. You know, you try to explain. Again, we realize the Holy Spirit came upon her. And we realize, again, what came forth was the God-man. And the God-man in and of itself is one of the great mysteries that is especially presented in this gospel that happened to be again right here. We realize when we look at the Lord Jesus that he's fully and completely God. When we realize, when we look at the Lord Jesus, he's fully and completely man at the self day at the same time. So here we have this uncontainable God who comes in containable man. It's an absolutely glorious, grand truth that we have taught. And so as man, he learns, he grows in wisdom and stature before man. 
uh, be uh, before others, but at the same time, he's endued with all wisdom and all knowledge. He is this great, great God. And I think we can enter into some of the wonder of Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 16, where it says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen of angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. This is our great God. This is a great Christ. You know, and this again is a truth that's incomprehensible. It's amazing to look at this gospel because so often throughout this gospel, we have those great I am statements, right? And those I am statements say that Jesus is the eternal self-sufficient God. And we sort of see that lived out. We see that he's bold. We see that he's brave. We see that he never um, uh, changes the message, even when there happens to be, again, hostilities. He calls his enemies to repentance and faith in him. And all the way through this gospel, we have this bold, brave Jesus that's preaching, that's teaching, that's doing all of these manifestations of glory and wonder until we get to the text that we happen to begin looking at tonight. Because if you look at verse number 27, it says this, Now my soul is troubled. You know, and where's the brave, where's the bold Jesus at this time? You know, I I think a lot of people, again, are disturbed by this very verse. And even those who happen to be believers, uh, uh, many times struggle with this verse. Where is the boldness? Where is the braveness of Jesus? But I think, again, as we go through this passage, we not only understand something of the humanity of Christ, we realize that Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is our Savior. But I think a lot of times we forget that Jesus is our great example. And he's our great example how we, how we are to follow, how we are to handle all of the stresses, all of the anxieties, all of the troubles, all of the sufferings that happen to the beginning of life. And when you look at all the trials that we go through, we go through manifest all sorts of different kinds of trials, whether they happen to be work-related, whether they happen to be spiritual, whether they happen to be family-related, whether they happen to be health things. We go through manifold, different anxieties, stresses, troubles, sufferings that happen to be in our life. And the question is, again, how do we handle these as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, how do we go through these? And the message that Scripture gives us, especially through the Gospels, is basically this. We follow Christ. He is our great example. We follow in his footsteps. We look at his life. We examine his life. And we follow that happens begin after him. So I'm not going to be that long this afternoon, but I really want to encourage your hearts this afternoon. You know, whatever you're going through, whatever trials, whatever stresses, whatever suffering, and if you happen to live in this fallen world, you are going through trials and stresses that happen to begin in your life. How do you handle this? How do you follow the Lord Jesus Christ? And I want us to look at that just under two headings this afternoon. And one of the things I want us to do, or one of the things that even Scripture calls us to do, which I think is so difficult. You know, if you're suffering today, this is one of the most difficult difficult things that you can do. And that is to take the focus off yourself and put it on something or someone else. And we see this in this text because we'll look at what it says in verse number 27 and following. It says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And then he says, Father, glorify your name. You know, and when we suffer this is the amazing thing that happens to be about the Word of God. And this is why I enjoy the book of Psalms so much, because it invites us to come with our sufferings, with our anxieties, with our stresses, and bring them to our great God that happens to be above. And when we do that, we, we, we start to share all of those anxieties, all of those stresses, all of those sufferings with one another. 
and we gain encouragement through the body of Christ. Now, here's the kicker in all of that. So often we can talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk about our suffering many times that after a while we get, we get our identity from those things. And we even go further many times. The more that we discuss these things and the more that we look at it from every single angle, I think a lot of times, even though we don't do it willingly, we do it unwittingly. And that is, again, we exaggerate many of our sufferings. Nobody's ever gone through the hardship. Nobody has ever gone through the pain. No, nobody has suffered as we do. You know, and one of the things that we're called to do in Scripture as we follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ is take the focus off ourselves. You know, we should be honest. We should be honest about the struggles and difficulties that happen to be in our life. But at the same time, we should try and take the focus off ourselves. And, and doesn't Jesus do this? I'm always amazed at this. You know, Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, you know, just before that Passover meal, you know, the disciples are arguing among themselves, who's going to be the greatest in, in, in Jesus' kingdom? They still haven't gotten a message that he is going to go to the cross. And there's nobody there to wash the feet. And none of the disciples want to wash the feet because they don't want to be looked at somehow as inferior. And what does Jesus do? Jesus takes on that mantle. He, he t- takes his robe off and takes, takes on that mantle, and he washes the disciples' feet. He, meet, he meets that need that happened to be there. Now, think of it. He knows in that evening, he even says right here, my soul is troubled. But in that evening, he's, he's going to suffer. Suffer like no one has ever suffered before, especially the next day. You know, and think of it, because if you happen to be in that anxiety, we want to give it to the disciples, don't we? We want to say, haven't you guys gotten the message? You know, wake up. Don't you know what's going to happen to me? Why are you arguing? Why are you looking at your own self? Look at me. Look at what I am going through. Don't you care? But what does Jesus do? He takes all of the stresses, all of the focus off himself. And he gives us this wonderful example of Christ-like service. Wonderful example that truly, and here it is, glorifies the Father that happens to be again above. And one of the things we have to try to do is not only enter the sufferings that happen to be again of other people, but when we are going through sufferings, it's never forget our calling to represent this great God, to enter into the lives of those that happen to be around us. And again, we present ourselves. We're not stoics. We realize our, our souls really go through this thing. That's why in the beginning of verse number 27, he says this, Now is my soul troubled. And that word troubled just means to be disturbed, agitated. It's, it's the exact opposite of being in a tranquil state or being in a state, again, of peace. You know, and we realize, you know, why his soul is agitated at this time. And the reason why is because a cross is nearer than it ever has been before. You know, the horrors, again, of going to that cross of Calvary happened to be before him. In fact, just above this passage, he talks about it. And Jesus answered in verse number 23, and Jesus answered, Uh, them. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, and he tells again how the Son of Man is going to be glorified. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, speaking of himself, it bears much much fruit. So his soul is in anguish because he is just about to go to the cross. Now here's a question I want us to ask. You know, why is he so much in anguish? Because we've had this bold and brave Jesus who knows all about the cross. And certainly even as we look through church history, we realize there's a lot of individuals who've died horrendous deaths, but have died it for the honor of this great God, for the honor of this great Christ, but have gone boldly, bravely 
even in the face of adversity, even in the face, again, of great trial that happened to be in his life. Why does Jesus have so much anguish that happens to be again of his soul? And I think that's a great question. And I think it's a great question, but the answer is twofold. I, th- I think a lot of times we forget how horrible crucifixion is. You, you, you know, just the physical turmoil that happened to be again there, it was um, concocted by the uh, Romans not to be a merciful way to kill people, but to be, again, a horrendous, a real humble, a real scary, a real frightful, again, way to die. In fact, if any of us ever saw somebody go to the cross, ever, ever saw a crucifixion, we would have to turn our faces. We would be traumatized by that whole scene. You know, but not only that, we also realize that the Son of Man knows beyond a shadow of a doubt when he goes to that cross, he is going to go as the sin bearer of all those who have ever trusted the Lord Jesus you know, he's going to take the wrath of God and drink that cup fully. And I don't know what it was like. None of us, again, know, know what that was like to take that cup again of wrath. Because think of it beyond a shadow of a doubt. When you drink that cup of wrath, you know, it's just like spending an eternity in hellfire. Because that is what our sins deserve. And what was it like? What was a horror like that happened to begin right there? And let me just, just say there's a mystery in this. Because never get this wrong. Because so often at Easter time we say something that is wrong. The Trinity for the first time is divided up. God can't be divided. Right? God is one being. You cannot divide up the, the uh, Trinity. But at the same time, in some way, the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ is is separated from God the Father. That's why he utters that cry on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, and the horror that happened to me again right there, and think of it, because a lot of expositors, again, really believe because Jesus was free from all sin, his perfect humanity at this point in his life, he has memorized all of the Old Testament. You know, he knows the Old Testament verbatim. And if that is true, can, can you think of the perfect son of man dwelling and meditating on those passages of scripture that deal with this travail, that deal with this agony that happens to begin of soul, he knows perfectly well what will happen to him. I mean, can, can you imagine meditating even on this time of a passage like Isaiah chapter 53 and verses 4 to 6, which is, Sir Shirley, speaking of the Christ, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And it's amazing to look at this passage of scripture because just think of some of these words that happen to begin right here. Stricken, smitten, afflicted of God, pierced by our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was against him. And add up all those words because he realizes what all of those words mean. He realizes the horrors of the cross more than any of us could ever realize as the innocent son of, son of man, son of God, has made sin for us and takes that wrath upon him. You know the thing that should really astonish us? is not that his soul is being crushed, his soul is being perplexed at this time. The thing that really should stun us is Jesus has a perfect knowledge of this and is still willing to go give his life as a perfect ransom for sin for people like us. I mean, it should, again, just startle us. But it's also, 
incredible when you look at this passage of Scripture, what, what he, he decides to do now that his soul is troubled. And you can see that again, because look at the verse and how the verse continues. It says, now is my soul troubled. And then he says this, and what shall I say? In other words, how should I pray about this? How should I beseech the Father God above? What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? And then he says this, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Now think about it. All of us go through anxieties. All of us go through stresses. All of us go through suffering. You know, and, all, and we look at our small congregation, and we look at, again, all the various different sufferings, all of the various different trials that happen to be even in this small congregation that happens to be right here. And we're told to bring all of our anxieties, all of our cares before this great God. But here's the question I want us to grapple with. How do we bring them? You know, what are we asking of God in the midst of our adversities, in the midst of our suffering? Because I think the most popular way we bring our adversities, we bring our sufferings before this holy God that happens to be above is basically this. Father, take them away. You know, we want the grace of release rather than the grace of perseverance. And when we look at a passage like this, this is why it's so important. When we look at a passage like this, when we go through the Gospel of John and look at his life, we realize beyond a shadow of a doubt, there is a purpose for the anguish of his soul. There's a purpose of the travail that he is going through right now. Right? He even states it because he says this, for, but for this purpose. In other words, this trial, this heaviness, this uh, cross that I'm going to go through for but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. You know, God is, a, is an absolute purposeful God. And, and we say this oftentimes. You know, God has a purpose for everything, right? right? We say that all the time. You know, we say it glibly. But, but what do we mean by that? God has a purpose for the trials, for the difficulties, for the suffering that I am going through in this life, in the here and now. Right? We, we, we all say that. And yet when we go through suffering that happened to begin in our life, you know, when we try to figure out why God is doing it, we don't see any good, or we see very little good, we, we want to question whether God is sovereign. We want to question why, whether God is loving. You know, and we look at this passage of Scripture, and please, when you go through the Gospels, don't sanctify the Gospels. Don't sanitize all of the hard parts. You know, this was the most cruel, the most wicked, the most ignoble, the most horrific act that was ever done by man. They took the most innocent man and butchered him on a cross. You know, but when you look at that, you say, well, oh, when you look at that, what came out of that is the greatest good that could ever be accomplished in our lives. And the reason why I say that is we all go through trials. And here's the question, do you believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is sovereign over those trials? That he has purpose in bringing those that happen to be in your life, whatever you are going through that happens to be in your life. And I think all of God's people say this, they really say this, they say amen. I believe in one way or another he's sovereign, he has this in my life for purpose, right? But the question we struggle with so often is this, Why? Why, God, have you put this in, in my life? And we look into the scriptures and we can find some reasons, we can find some conformity to character, but none of it seems to do justice many times to the pain that we are going through that happened to be in our life. And we want something else. We want some other answer, some big reason to the question of why. 
But part of, part of the walk of faith is to realize God is in control of all these things, and God has purposes beyond us to truly understand. And let me just say this, and I, and I don't say it glibly, but I think if we found out all of the reasons why God is doing what he's doing, we still wouldn't grasp it. We still wouldn't understand. And I think, again, a lot of times the better question that we should be asking is not why. Why am I going through this? I think the better question is how, isn't it? How should I go through this? How should I go through the suffering that happens to me again in my life? Because you know what? There's an answer right in this text. Because look at, the, look at what Jesus says right here. Because right at the beginning of the next verse, he says this. Father, glorify your name. Right? Think, think of that. Because that's the answer right there. He doesn't ask for release. He doesn't ask for somehow that God would take him out of that answer. But he doesn't ask for ease or self-preservation. But he asks for the glory of the Father, the fame of this great one that happens to be again above. And I wonder, in those moments of trial, in those moments of trouble, in those moments of anxiety that happen to be in our life, when the tr- troubles of life sweep over us, how many times do we pray that the glory of God might be manifested in our lives? Right? I mean, how are we to respond when somebody sins against us? What are we to do when a loved one is sick and at the point, again, of going out of this world? What do we do when illness strikes even our own life? What do we do when we lose our job or we're under, again, financial straits? What do we do when our family is falling apart, our marriage becomes, again, almost unbearable, trying and difficulty? What do we do when the pain just keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming and it really feels unbearable that having to begin in our life? What do we do? And this is what we should do. We should resist asking the question why, and ask the question how. How can I magnify this God? How can I glorify him? How can I make much of this great God? You know, it's amazing because Jesus is not in seclusion right here. He's before everyone. Father, glorify your name through what I am going to go through. And the idea, again, of glorifying his name means showing the fame, the joy, the preeminence, again, of the person in that very hour. And it's amazing to look at this aspect, again, of prayer, because I think this is the highest and the best prayer that we could ever ask. I I think it has the highest meaning and the highest purpose for our lives, doesn't it? You know, when you look at what is best for our life, I mean, so often we think what is best for our life, and we come up with all sorts of reasons. If God would just take this affliction, if God would just take this away. But when you look at the prayer that Jesus offers, it's the best thing for us. I mean, can you think of anything that's better than the glorification of God? Can you think of anything that's higher than the magnification, again, of who he happens to be? You know, it's amazing because suffering, again, gives us that opportunity. It shows us so much about the justice, the righteousness, the mercy, the forgiveness, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And suffering's a bullhorn in our life. People notice when we are suffering. And let me tell you, beyond a shadow of a doubt, we can either point to ourselves or point to this great God of mercy, this great God of grandeur who has saved our souls through the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, and we have to resist the temptation of not only asking the question why, but pointing all the time to ourselves and the travail that happened to begin of our soul. And we must point to this great hope that we have in the Lord Jesus. And I love this because there's a voice of approval that comes from heaven. And let's just begin reading again at verse number 28. He prays, Father, glorify your name. 
And then we read, then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it was thunderous. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. You know, one of the things I'm always amazed at as I read the word of God, I'm always amazed at how much encouragement God gives. You know, and as you see this worked out in the life of believers, I'm always amazed at this. Aren't you? I mean, a lot of times we, can, we complain about life, we complain about the events that happen at the beginning of life, but are you always amazed? You know, how much God encourages us and how he encourages us in different ways and different know-hows. It could be, again, just sitting in the pew and hearing a sermon preached. And it was such a timely um, uh, sermon. The pastor or the preacher didn't know what it was going through, but that message just seemed to hit home. It just seemed what I needed at that point in my life. Have you, have you ever been there? Or have you ever been there and you just sat down and you feel so, so dry, you feel so parched, and all of a sudden you sit down with a Christian friend and you start talking about the Lord. You start talking about his goodness. You start talking about his greatness. And it's almost like it revives our soul and encourages us when we were so parched, when we were so down. Have you ever picked up a portion of scripture and read it and just the truth seemed to leap off the page or a Christian article or a Christian book? And it's amazing because God has so many ways to encourage us. What we have to do is be willing to hear the message when God encourages us. Because so often we're not looking, we're not listening, we're not hearing that message that God again has for us. And there's a message of encouragement that happens to be again right here. And you can certainly see it because it comes in a, such a sensational way. It's in verse number 28 and it says, And a voice came from heaven. And here's what the voice said, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. You know, it's amazing hearing this voice from heaven, you know, because it's such a confirming voice. Jesus, as a perfect man, had to walk by faith. You know, and there's so much confirmations, again, when he walks by faith, because, because this is revelation that's given to him by the Father God. And this is the third time we hear the voice of God, isn't it? The first time was at his baptism, right? This is my son, beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. The second time, again, we hear it is at the Mount of Transfiguration. You know, we have this confirming. Again, we have uh, Moses and Elijah also, also come, you know, that talked about, again, his uh, crucifixion. And then we have this voice that happens to be right here. And all three times, in one way or another, it has to deal with the mission of Jesus, of giving his life as a perfect ransom for sin. But as you look at it right here, it talks about, again, glory past and glory future, what Jesus has done and what, what will come again in his life. And, of course, when it's talking about a past glory, it's talking about the ministry of Jesus, all that he has done, all that he has said, such as, in the near context, back in chapter number 11 and verse number 4, it says, but when Jesus heard it, in other words, that Lazarus has died, this is what he said, this illness does not lead to death. What's it for? It is for, and think of this in light of all of the trials that have to be in our life and what they're both. It is, about, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be, uh, so the Son of God may be glorified through it. So, and so we see that, that it brought the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. But when he says, and I will glorify it through your life, what he's talking about is another death. What he's talking about is another resurrection. 
What he's talking about is the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven. What he's talking about is the exaltation of Jesus at the right hand of glory on high. And all of that teaches, again, the preeminence of God, the character of God, the glory of this one true God, and how immense, how grand he happens to be. And we realize that this voice is also given to us, because you can, can you imagine... Well, one of the primary purposes of the Gospel of John is he is evangelistic, right? And can you imagine reading this Gospel at the, at the, um, uh, for the first time? You know, and you're wondering about this and seeing all of these events and seeing all that talks about death, you know, and all these other things. And you're wondering about the life and it informs the reader, you know, don't lose confidence in Jesus. Don't lose confidence. Here's the voice from heaven. Here's the confirmation. Jesus is God's man. Jesus is none other than God's Messiah. God's one we must hope for because there's dark things coming. And don't get off track. Don't think that he's a forgery. Don't think that somehow... He is not God's Messiah, God's man, our Lord, our Savior. You know, you might not understand these things, again, as we go on reading these various different events, but this is who he is. You know, it is amazing because those who, like I say, who want ears to hear, they hear. This is such a confirming voice that comes from heaven. But there's so many that happen to begin out there that don't want to hear this message of encouragement, that don't want to place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And we're given an inkling of that in verse number 29 because it talks about the crowds, right? These are the onlookers. These are not the followers of Jesus, but it says the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thunders. Others said an angel had spoken to him. And certainly this is a misunderstanding of this whole scene and even the words that were spoken. It's absolutely amazing, isn't it? Now, when you look at thunder, thunder many times in the Old Testament speaks of the voice of God and the presence of God. But let me tell you, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that's not what they mean here. That's not the connotation that they had. They're trying to give some naturalistic explanation to what happened in this passage. And others are even trying to downplay it, saying it was just some sort of spirit being, some sort of angel that gave this message. But here's the amazing thing. They're arguing about the phenomenon, but you know what they've missed? They've missed a message. This is who Jesus is. This is what he has done. This is what he will do, is glorify the Father that happens to be above. They missed a whole message. They missed a whole encouragement again of the message. You know, and why did they miss that whole encouragement? And the reason why is because they willfully and stubbornly cannot take in the message of Christ. And do not want to take in that message and cannot take in that message. You know, it's like Jesus said earlier in John chapter 8, he's speaking to the religious leaders here, and in, in uh, chapter number 8, beginning at verse number 42, he says this, if God were your father, you would love me, right? That's how you know. For I came from God, and I, uh, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? And then he explains why they cannot understand or do not understand. Look at what he says. It is because you cannot Not because you will not, right? Cannot and will not are different. Will not, again, speaks again of something I refuse to do. Cannot, again, speaks of inability. And he says this, it is because you cannot bear to hear my word, right? Right, so there's a sense where there's this, there's this, there's this defiant attitude. It doesn't matter how, how great it happens to be. They are not going to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's also an inability that happened to be right there. I, I can remember early on in my Christianity, I was talking to one of my friends about Jesus Christ and him crucified, and I was witnessing to him. 
And I, and I can remember he rolled his eyes at one point and he said this, you know, the only way that I will believe in Jesus is if, if all of a sudden God speaks to me with a voice that happens to be from heaven. Well, imagine this. Here is the voice from heaven that speaks of Jesus Christ, that he has been glorified through the name, through the testimony of Jesus Christ, and that he will be glorified the Lord Jesus Christ. And the mass of humanity that happens to be before Jesus Christ rejects that message. Imagine that. Imagine how hard the human heart happens to be. But listen how Jesus responds here, because, because we read Jesus answered. This is how he answered the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now think of that. Really? You know, because Jesus just has prayed. Jesus has just prayed this. Father, glorify your name. You know, don't save me from this hour, but in this hour, in this travail, in the events that are about to transpire, God glorify. And then he has confirmation. And this is one of the things we have to realize, that this voice that comes from heaven is in response to the prayer of Jesus to God the Father that happens to be above. So how can he say it's not for him? And the reason why, it is for him, but it's not for him alone. In fact, the main audience happens to be, again, those that happen to be around him. And you read through the rest of the narrative passage, which, which Abe read to us uh, this afternoon. It's incredible, because this stands, again, as a warning. You know, if you reject Jesus Christ, which the vast majority of the crowd did, there is no excuse. And it's amazing, isn't it? Because you realize this. You know, when the preaching of the gospel goes forth, the message that happens to be right there is today is the day of repentance. Today is the day to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? There is a day where this will no longer be today. You know, the day of judgment will come. And here's the amazing thing. I think we forget this. You, you, you know who the great judge on the day of uh, judgment is? Anyone know? That's right. It's Jesus Christ. It's him that rides on that white stallion. It's him who, has, who carries the wrath of God and brings the wrath of God upon all those who have never repented, all those who have never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ. The wrath of God is found, again, in Jesus Christ. And right now, he's our Lord. Right now, he's our Savior. But when he comes a second time, just read the book of Revelation. Some of those um, images that happen to begin in that, that, that book about Jesus Christ are just fearful. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living Christ and not own him as Lord, as Savior. You know, and there's going to become a time where, where today is, is going to be run out. And there's this fearful judgment to come. But one of the things I love about this passage of Scripture is he's preparing not only the huge crowd that happens to be around him, but also the apostles. And here's the amazing thing. That message for the apostles is there to believe. It's there to trust in. There's going to be dark days. You're not going to understand. But think back. Think back to this voice. The only problem with the disciples is they didn't think back. They didn't hearken back to this voice that came from heaven, this voice of God the Father. I am glorified through the Son, and I will be glorified through the Son. I mean, how much would that have lightened their burdens through those three days before his resurrection? You know, and it's a good lesson for us, because how much encouragement are we taking from the Scripture? 
How, how much encouragement are we reading in our times of suffering, in our times of travail, in our times, again, of anxiety? How many times are we coming to the Word of God and recognizing our God is up to good in our lives and up to His glory? You know, that's the amazing thing. There's so much comfort that happens to be, again, in God's presence, in God's Word. You know, uh, over in the Old Testament, in Psalm chapter 34, in verse number 18, it says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Are you brokenhearted tonight? Are you crushed in spirit? You know, let me say beyond a shadow of a doubt, of all the saints that happen to be at Emmanuel Baptist Church, none has an easy life. None escapes the trials, the travails that happen to be again of life. And as you go through these trials, as you go through these travails, do you realize beyond a shadow of a doubt, God is near, God is at hand, God is in control of all these things. You know, one of the most comforting messages that that the uh, Apostle Paul gave to these new founding churches? <laughs> have, 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 you, have you ever read it? I, I mean, it baffles the minds. And let me just read it to you. It's over in Acts chapter 14, beginning at verse number 21. But just take this in. When, when they, this is what it says, when they had preached the gospel to, to that city and had many, and made many disciples, they returned, right, to these other churches that they planted, to Lystra, to, and to Iconium, and to Antioch. And listen to what they did, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. Now, how do you encourage people to continue in the faith? How do you encourage them? It's going to be all right. You're going to make it through. Things are going to get easier. Look at what he says. Saying, this is the encouragement. This is the strength of the soul. And saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Wow. Now, here's the question. How's that encouraging? Right? You're there. And praise God, your pastor comes over to you and says, I know you're going through many trials that happen to be in your life. And I'm here to say, you know, things can get a lot worse in your life. And you say, praise God, thank you, pastor. (laughs) Right? Right? Why? How can that ever be encouraging in your life? And here's how it's encouraging. Because it tells us beyond a shadow of a doubt, God has planned for these tribulations in my life. This is not a mistake. He's with me in that trial. He has planned it for my good and his glory. That's what it's telling us. Trials want to come into my life and say there's something wrong. You know, God's not aware. God's not here. There's something wrong that's going through Through many trials, through many tribulations, we must, we must. Must means it's absolute essential. We must go through to enter the kingdom of God. And I wonder how many times we come to the scripture. How many times we come in on a Sunday morning, and whether it happens to be the hymn sing, whether it happens to be the scriptures rereading, whether it happens to be Sunday school, whether it happens to be, be the preaching time, how many times... We are listening to the encouraging voice of God through the word of God. It's there. My plea to you this morning or this afternoon, whatever you are going through, do not miss the encouraging voice of God through his wonderful grace. One of the things I'm I'm always amazed at, you know, it's the grace of God that happens to be in the souls of Emmanuel. You know, I'm just amazed. When I come in Sunday morning, a lot of times I'll see the church fill up, and I'll be over here, and I'll just be praising God, praising God, praising God. I am so astonished 
at the Saints of Emmanuel Baptist Church. And I'm not so astonished because all of us have such difficult and trying lives. All of us have been so much, through so much adversity. The thing that I'm amazed at, at the most, that happened to be about your life, about my life, is this. The absolute grace of God is all over your life. And you know how you can see at this moment? You are here. This is not an accident. With all of the trials, with all of the travails that happen to be in your life, you are here. And when it comes to this passage of Scripture, here it is. My soul is in anguish, in absolute heaviness. But Father, Father, it's not, I'm not going to ask you to release me from this hour. But for this hour I came. God planned these things. We can take so much encouragement from his presence. And we serve a God who absolutely makes no mistakes. He can be trusted in all of our adversity. Let's seek to encourage our hearts through his presence and through his word. Let's bow our hearts in a moment of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness, for your grace that happened to begin in our life. And what an amazing passage of scripture. When we hear these words, Lord, how seldom in our prayers do we pray. Father, it's for this hour that you've called me. Lord, if I'm going through this adversity, you've planned it in my life. And if you've planned it in my life, you have your good intentions. And the greatest intention that this could be is for your glory. Father, help me glorify you. Help me praise you. Help me to honor you. God, may we find great direction, great encouragement, great comfort in this passage of Scripture. And we will glorify you. We thank you again in Christ's name. Amen.